Our holy and sovereign God, we bow before you. We delight in you and are amazed that you delight in us. And as we study this incredible subject that we are looking at of this time in history of the Reformation, what what hope it gives to us to see what a dark time this was 500 years ago, 600 years ago, and yet in your sovereign purpose, you intervened into history and changed the course of events. You changed the world. We ask that you would use that truth to give us hope this weekend and give us also zeal to take the means that these men used, or rather were used by you to accomplish this purpose, the means of your word. Bless our time together. Teach us. May we not glorify these men. May we exalt Christ. And may we glorify you and your incredible working in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight we, we do go back in time to a study of the Protestant Reformation that did take place just over 500 years ago. And, and we don't have time to cover all that we could. There are, I mean, if you just go and read the names that Shiloh, I believe, put together on that board, you recognize there is a lot that we can cover. And I decided just to cover a few particular names, hopefully just to whet your interest in church history. If you are not a student of church history, some of you are, as we've talked about already. Uh, maybe this will give you an interest in it and will make you want to go and read. And there are plenty of names and plenty of things that you can learn about. But what I want us to understand this weekend is that the study of church history is very important. And it's important for a number of reasons. Uh, One of the reasons is many of the same controversies and troubles that we see today, if we knew church history, they wouldn't be controversy and troubles today because they've already been addressed. But our main focus, as Rusty said this weekend, is this, that without exception, every reformer that we could name, be it John Wycliffe, be it John Huss, be it Martin Luther, be it Oryx Wingley, be it John Calvin, be it William Tyndale, be it John Knox or anybody else you could name, without exception, each one of these men studied and preached and lived by God's Word, God's truth, without exception. When we look at their lives, what we find that the key to the success of the Reformation was not these men. It was not their gifts. It was not their talents. It was not their courage. It was not their intelligence, though we could, and we will, talk about all of those things because they were gifted, they were intelligent and all that. But really the key was God's Word. God's Word was taught and it was proclaimed. They lived by the principle of sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the authority for the faith and the practice of the church. And when we look at the modern church today, and I don't want to speak in absolutes because that's certainly not true, but when we look at the modern church today, by and large, the church has forgotten this. The church has forgotten what the source is for, our, for how we practice the church and how we reach this lost world and how we conduct ourselves in the body and as individuals. And instead, 
The church has begun to focus on other things, pragmatic things. We focus on celebrity personalities. We focus on good music. We focus on singles ministry. We focus on child, you know, children's events and activities. And we focus on whatever else that we might come up with. And we could go around the room and talk about those things. There are some that even survey lost people and ask them what they would like to see in the church. And then they take what lost people say they want to see in God's church. And they mold the church after what an unbelieving, totally depraved world has said they would like to see in God's church. That makes no sense, does it? And when it comes to the preaching, oh, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't like my church too much. Sermons are not to be too long. My dad always asked me for my sermons. They, and my dad lives in Tennessee. My mom and dad do have their whole life, lives. And I live in Atlanta, Georgia. And my dad always wants my sermons. But every time I send him my sermons, he, he almost always sends back too long. Too long, too, too long, too long. He keeps asking, but almost always too long, son. That's too long. Well, that's the way we think. Sermons must not be too long. Sermons must be filled with practical information. Sermons must be relevant, which is really just a buzzword that really means shallow. Sermons must be shallow. Sermons must not be convicting. Sermons must not be challenging. Sermons must not be theological, but relevant, practical, focused on felt needs and worldly things. It's, this is what we see, and this is why we see that a lot of the visible church is dying, compromising. Now, we're not Elijah. We're not alone. We know that God has more than 5,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal, but we see that the church is capitulating, that they're, they're moving towards this world, and major conferences even, conventions are dying, and turning to liberalism and, and worldliness, and, and, and that is because of this shift away from an emphasis and a submission to God's Word. That's like unplugging a lamp from an outlet. There's no power to, to light the bulb inside that lamp. That's the same thing that happens whenever the church divorces itself from a submission to and, and the use, the right use of God's Word. And, and the Reformers knew this. They recognized this. The greatest victory of the Reformation was simply this, rescuing the Bible away from corruption. That was the victory of the Reformation. It was rescuing the Bible away from the corruption of the church who had hidden it and giving it to the people. If you're not familiar, and we're going to talk in more detail what the world was like in just a minute, but if you're not familiar with this time before the Reformation, no one but the clergy had a Bible. And there was one church. One. What church was that? Well, the Roman Catholic Church, of course. And you really couldn't even call that a church, could you? The Roman Catholic church was totally divorced from biblical Christianity, covered up in a cloud of superstition and idolatry and heresy. But after the Reformation, God's Word filled the earth, and now there's a second option. It's not just Roman Catholicism now, but now there's 
Protestantism, Lutheranism. Soon there will be Calvinism. There is a, a new option, another, another option for God's people. And it's not Roman Catholicism, but Protestantism. And the Bible is now available to the common man for them to search the Scriptures for themselves and to evaluate what it is that they were being taught. The gospel for the first time in ages was preached, proclaimed, and shared and read in the language of the people. And they could see God's truth for themselves. And millions were converted. And the reason we're sitting in this room today is because of what God did in the 14th, the 15th, the 16th, the 17th, and so on in that time. Well, this coming Monday is Reformation Day, and that's why we're celebrating this. That's why we're talking about this. And of course, if you're not familiar, Reformation Day is October 31st, of course, and that is the day on which Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, which we will talk about tomorrow. And many people believe that the Reformation really began on October 31st and 1517, but that's actually not true. The seeds of reform began years earlier than that, primarily with a man named John Wycliffe who was in England. But before we get to him, we really need to stop and and start understanding the setting in which the Reformation took place. It's the reason why there was the necessity or a need for a Reformation is because of all of the corruption that was happening in the church. And it was rampant. And we begin by looking at the Pope, of course, the leader of the Roman Catholic Church. It's not a surprise to learn that the papacy was wicked. And many reformers, including John Wycliffe, by the way, I believe it was you that said he was the most un-Catholic Catholic priest who ever lived. That's, that's fair because John Wycliffe was one of the first to, to say that the Pope was Antichrist. That doesn't sound much like a uh, Roman Catholic priest, does it? Uh, this is the way the Reformers looked at the Pope, and he certainly is an Antichrist. Now, what was it that made him such an Antichrist? Well, for starters, the Pope claimed not only that he was the vicar of Christ on earth, the representative, the only representative, really, of Christ on earth, the chief authority in the church. The Pope wanted to be a major political figure as well. He wanted power not only over the church, but he really wanted power over the world. He wanted to be the chief political power in all the world. And so revered was the Pope during this time that he was actually blasphemously referred to as our Lord God, the Pope. Could you imagine? This is how they looked looked at him. This was his position. He wanted power over the church and over the kingdoms of this world. Now this really began to ramp up in the 11th and the the 12th centuries. Papal authority over secular powers was really expanding significantly and it came to a head in 1213 with King John in England, King John and Pope Innocent III. Well, they both wanted the right to appoint clergy in, in this domain, the domain of England. And, and, and in 1213, it came time to appoint the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, this is a, a very highly prized, of course, bishopric there as in Canterbury. And both the king and the pope had chosen a candidate. But when the pope sent his candidate, the king wouldn't let him in the kingdom. He said, 
No, I am in charge of who becomes an archbishop in my territory and not you. And he appointed his own pope or his own bishop there, excuse me, and would not let the pope's man uh, come in. Well, as a result, the pope took away all of the rights out of the church from England. The only thing that you could do in England in the church was you could have last rites read and you could be baptized and, and, and that was it. And King John was upset about this, and so he decided that he was going to fight back, and he seized all of the property that was owned by the church in the kingdom. We're going to see in just a minute that the church owned a massive amount of property. You would not believe... There's no way to even put a figure on how wealthy uh, the Roman Catholic Church was during this time. So the king seized all of the land in England, and that just sent the Pope off into a tizzy, of course, and so he excommunicated the king, which that's a big deal. If you get excommunicated by the church, you know what that means? No heaven for you, not even purgatory. You're going to hell if you're excommunicated by the Roman Catholic Church. The king's soul was on the line here. He tried to fight back, but the pope, that wasn't enough either. And so the pope tried to fight against him. He went and talked to uh, King Philip of France, and King Philip of France was going to invade And he was going to fight against King John, and this finally scared King John, and he surrendered to the Pope, and he yielded, in effect, supreme authority over England to the Pope. And the Pope said, that's not enough. You're going to give us all of our properties back, but then you're now going to pay us a yearly fee in order to hold those properties as feudatory in England. And the king agreed. And the king of England really, and all of England, became a vassal state to the pope. The pope is now the most powerful political figure in England and not King John. So you can see the kind of power that the pope was trying to wield, even the power over kings. Now there was another controversy that happened during Wycliffe's life, however, that made this whole idea of the Pope being the supreme authority over the church and the world kind of laughable, is that there was a schism in the Roman Catholic Church. And now there is two popes. One is in Rome, the other is in France, and both of them claim to be the actual Pope. And both of them claim to be the infallible Pope. Well, if the Pope's infallible, which one? The Pope who is in France or the Pope who is in Rome? Wycliffe would rail against this and point out the obvious truth that this was a demonstration of believing the foolishness of the Pope as a supreme authority over the church. Now, we mentioned earlier about the the corruption and the worldliness and the wealth of the church. The, The church was so wealthy that it really dominated the life of the people in England. It is estimated that the papacy owned nearly half of all of the estates in England. That's the domination of the church over this land. Numbers of clergy, the monks, the friars, the priests, many of them were wealthy. And then there was also on top of this, this corruption in wealth and in money and in, in abuse of the people, the practice of indulgences. Now, indulgences is really going to be what sets Martin Luther off in 1517, and we'll talk about that tomorrow. But the practice of indulgences was this idea that you could pay money into the church and you could get time off of your sentence in purgatory. 
You could pay some money, and then the Pope could forgive you of your sins, and you could get time cut off in purgatory. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute as well. Wealth was such a part of the church, there was also this this idea that was happening, this practice of absenteeism. Anybody know what absenteeism is? Now, I want you to imagine you pay Rusty the the million-dollar salary that you pay him every year. Imagine paying Rusty that salary, and then he never showed up. You never saw him. You never met him. You never heard him teach. He never spoke to you. He never visited you in your home. You never saw the man. You don't even know what he looks like. And yet, every month, you're filling out a check and sending it off to Rusty and paying him to be your pastor. That was happening in the Roman Catholic Church in these days. Because the church was so wealthy and collecting of tithes and and indulgence money and all of that was uh, such a high amount, that people would actually fight and bid over the opportunity to be a bishop in certain places that had a higher population where their salary would be greatly increased. Sometimes those positions would be given away by cardinals or the pope or whoever as a gift to a friend. And they would just simply collect money and never show up. They would be the priest in absenteeism collecting money, but nobody would even know who they were. But it wasn't just the absence of the minister, and here we get to what is about to really change in the Reformation. There was the absence of the Bible. The Bible was never expounded. The Bible was never taught. The Bible was never read. And the reason for that is it was illegal, illegal to read the Bible in the language of the people. It was illegal to preach in the language of the people. In 1229, a council of the church forbade the use of the Bible by laymen, claiming that laymen could not understand it, and it was too dangerous to put it in the hands of people. And even today, the Roman Catholic Church claims to be the only infallible interpreter of biblical truth. And they point to Protestantism and they say, look, here's Baptists, here's Methodists, here's Pentecostals, here's whatever. And they say, this is the problem when you give the Bible to the layman. They have all this division. Well, here's the problem when you say that one man can be the infallible interpreter. He's a heretic. And you have to submit to him. The Bible was never taught. There was no biblical teaching, no preaching whatsoever. Even the Mass was performed in Latin, and here's the kicker. The priest performing the Mass in many occasions did not even know what he himself was saying. He just memorized the words and then would stand up there and recite it. He didn't even know himself what he was saying to the people. He just showed up, went through the motions, said the thing, gave the Eucharist, and that was it. And then he collected his check, and he went on. Sometimes they would tell stories of the saints. They would preach on the seven virtues, the seven deadly sins, but there was no exposure to the Scriptures. And when there's no exposure to the Scriptures, what does that mean? There's no gospel. There's no gospel. Think about that. The gospel is not being preached to the people. It is set aside, and actually later it's going to be anathematized. It's it's going to be cursed. The the Catholic Church will release a a specific statement, an authoritative statement that says if anyone believes 
in the doctrine of justification by faith alone, let them be anathema, accursed. There's no gospel preaching. Salvation is not by faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's not received in this way. People are saved through faith, of course, but also there's church attendance. There's participation in the Mass. There's almsgiving. There's acts of penance. Of course, they don't believe in imputation of the righteousness of Christ. We know that we are justified because the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed or applied to us. It's given to us as a gift. We receive it by faith and we are counted righteous before God, not on the basis of our own righteousness, but on the basis of the righteousness of Christ. We are clothed in His righteousness. The church to this day, the Roman Catholic Church, they still reject that. That's heresy in the Roman Catholic Church and it certainly wasn't being taught here. Purgatory then is invented because purgatory is where the souls of the departed saints would go until after they had been finally purged of their sin or an indulgence was paid. That would get them out. Again, this is going to be what Johann Tetzel is going to preach in the time of Luther. If you don't know about Johann Tetzel, you do. You know he had a, he had a great jingle. We'll talk about his jingle tomorrow. And so the truths of Scripture, they're buried under myth, superstition, and tradition. John Fox, yes, the, the famous martyrologist who wrote Fox's book of martyrs. Fox said, quote, the church was solely concerned with outward ceremony and human traditions. People spent their entire lives heaping up one ceremony after another in hopes of salvation, not knowing that it was theirs for the asking. Simple, uneducated people who had no knowledge of Scripture were content to know only what their pastors told them, and these pastors took care to only teach them what came from Rome." End quote. That's a dark time, isn't it? But it was into this time of darkness where there is no gospel, no Scripture, no biblical teaching. People are being abused. They're being stolen from. The Pope is living in worldliness and idolatry and heaping all of this law and ceremony and superstition upon the people. It was in this time of darkness that the Reformation would take place. Let me ask you, what does that tell you tonight? Look around at our world. And I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I deal with this all the time as the pastor of the church there in Atlanta my people, a lot of times they come in and they believe in the sovereignty of God. They, they do. They, they know the doctrinal truth of God's sovereignty. And yet when they look around at the world, and we all know what this is like, don't we? We struggle to remember that, don't we? We live in a time of darkness and it seems like the world is running as fast as they can away from the truth of Christ. And things which are evil are called good. Things which are good are called evil. And... All this stuff is happening and people, they're tempted to, to give up hope. And yet, the Reformation reminds us that in times of darkness, God can shine His light into the world and sovereignly bring about the salvation of the souls of men. And we ought to be praying that He would do it again. Because He can. He can. And we pray that He would. Well, into this world would be born a man named John Wycliffe. And the exact year of his birth is unknown. It's believed to be around 1324. 
But so influential was John Wycliffe that he was referred to as the morning star of the Reformation. Now, the morning star is actually not a star at all. It's actually the planet Venus, and it rises up in the darkest hours just before the dawn, and this bright star that shines, Venus, it, it kind of signals the world that the sun is about to rise, that the sun is about to come up, that light is about to dawn. And that's what John Wycliffe became. He was, was the first light to shine into this dark world, paving the way for what would come later. He was born in Yorkshire in England in a time when the English language was growing in prominence. It was, you know, before it only been spoken by lay people. It was kind of a, of a low-class language, the way people looked at it. But by the time of Wycliffe, now the educated were beginning to speak English as well. English was really growing as, uh, as a language. And in Yorkshire, John Wycliffe was educated by a village priest, and after he graduated, he was... That he was sent to Oxford as a teenager and he got the best education available. He graduated from Queen's College with his doctorate. And it was during these studies that the Black Death came through England. You know, the Black Death was, was a very terrible, of course, uh, plague that, that went through England. And many, many people lost their lives. And people lived in, in great fear of the Black Death. But it was during this time, this frightening moment of the Black Death, that John Wycliffe was converted. One historian says, quote, Alarmed at the thoughts of eternity, the young man passed days and nights in his cell, groaning and sighing and calling upon God to show him the path that he ought to follow. And listen to this. He found it in the Holy Scriptures, and he resolved to make it known to others. Wycliffe was converted through reading the Scriptures. And he would make it his goal in life to make the Bible known to others that they might experience the same thing. He would become the most prominent theologian in all of England. It was said, even by an enemy of Wycliffe, that his debating prowess was almost inhuman. That even in his time as, stu as a student at Oxford, as a teenager, he would debate the professors and win. People were just awe-inspired by the debate ability of John Wycliffe. Now, when we talk about the corruption of the church and the neglect of the Bible, that's seen in the education of would-be ministers. Now, if you're going to be a minister, if you're going to be a priest, where do you think your education should be really focused? Well, you would think that it would be where? In the Bible, of course. When I went to seminary, the, the main focus of seminary is in biblical studies. Yes, we had to take other things. I had to take the worst class I've ever taken in my life, and I apologize if you're trying to teach your children this subject, but it was miserable for me, and that was philosophy. Oh, God, I hated philosophy. Oh, it was miserable. I remember when I was getting ready to graduate and I was putting my last classes together, I was really excited. I was going to finish up with apologetics. I was going to finish up with, I think, Old Testament or whatever it was. And then my advisor reminded me that I had yet to take philosophy. And it scared me to death. I did not want to take philosophy. And I began to study philosophy and learned a whole lot of useless information in order that I might pass that class, which I did. And at the time of the final, I could have told you what everybody had ever said about everything ever. And I do not remember not even one of them's name today. But, uh, but that was the emphasis in seminary. It wasn't philosophy. It wasn't those things. Thankfully, I didn't have to take math again. It was 
Scripture. But when John Wycliffe is preparing for the priesthood, for the ministry, there's no emphasis in Bible. One scholar notes this, that the bachelors of theology of the lowest grade held readings in the Word of God, but those of the middle and higher ranks, listen to this, considered it beneath their dignity to expound so elementary a book as the Scriptures, end quote. It was beneath the dignity of the clergy to study the Scriptures. That's what they thought about the Bible. John Fox again says, There was no mention nor almost any word spoken of Scripture. But when John Wycliffe was studying, he was able to get his hands on the Bible and he loved it. He loved the Bible and he invested himself in the Bible. He would become known as the gospel doctor because of how much he loved and he taught the Bible. After he received his master's, Wycliffe returned to Oxford for doctrinal studies, and during this time he was ordained to the priesthood, and he became a priest in Fillingham. And what did he begin to do? Unlike anybody else, what was he doing? Preaching the Bible in the language of the people. He would later go from Fillingham to another parish in Buckinghamshire, which was closer to Oxford. But after he graduated there, he became a professor, and his reputation grew throughout the kingdom. And and while he was a professor at Oxford, he, he lectured on many different subjects, um, even philosophy. Sorry, John, he wouldn't have liked what I said earlier. But even philosophy, Wycliffe lectured on that. But what was his emphasis as a professor at Oxford? The Bible. John Wycliffe lectured for 40 years in Oxford as a Bible champion. And I have to tell you, it's only by the sovereign providence of God that that was allowed to happen. Remarkable that he was allowed to do that for 40 years. This was this influence in a world of darkness. Wycliffe regarded the Scriptures as the final standard and authority of truth, and he taught it to his students because he wanted them to feel the same way. Steve Lawson said, quote, in his lectures, he stressed that the infallible Word of God was the highest authority and surest guide in all matters. He refused to cite the teachings of the church fathers, the findings of councils, and the decisions of popes as carrying greater authority than the Bible. His appeal was to Scripture alone, end quote. Radical in the time of John Wycliffe. Well, it's not a surprise to you, I'm sure, that a man who emphasized the Scriptures like this brought a lot of controversies his way. He was involved in a lot of issues. And one of the first ones uh, that he was involved in had to do with what I told you earlier, which was about that whole idea of the, the Pope trying to have political authority over the King of England. Well, King John had died, and a new king, King Edward, well, he didn't want to deal with this anymore. He was about to be involved in a war with France and he needed the funds and he would refuse to pay the Pope that fee that the Pope demanded to hold the, hold the lands of England or of the Pope there in England, excuse me. And though the Pope threatened, the king stood steadfast, but he needed help. He needed help to convince Parliament that they didn't have to pay this fee to the Pope anymore. And he called upon John Wycliffe, whose reputation was growing in the kingdom, to help him. Again, the sovereign providence of God. And where do you think John Wycliffe turned to give the king the answer that he needed? Where did he turn? To the Bible, of course. 
The only way to answer the Pope is with the Bible because the Pope sure doesn't know it. And so Wycliffe began to look at the Bible and he saw the greed and the worldliness of the Pope and he saw that he had no right over the land of England. So he opposed the Pope and he gave support to the king. Lawson writing again said, quote, Wycliffe had developed a doctrine he called dominion, which emphasized God's sovereignty as the highest authority over the earth. And he taught that God has assigned His authority over earthly property and worldly possessions to the secular government. And for England, this stewardship was to the king and parliament. At the same time, God has designated His authority over spiritual matters to the church. Quote. So what's he saying there? God is sovereign. And in God's sovereignty, according to Scripture... God has given political power to the world rulers, to the king. But God has given authority in matters pertaining to religion to the church. Wycliffe looked at Luke chapter 22, verse 25, which says, "...the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you." You are not to be like those benefactors and princes of the world who exercise lordship. You don't do that. Listen to how Wycliffe trapped the Pope. Wycliffe said, quote, Here lordship and dominion is plainly forbidden to the apostles. And dearest thou then usurp the same? If thou wilt be a lord, thou shalt lose thine apostleship. Or if thou wilt be an apostle, thou shalt lose thy lordship. End quote. You can't have both. If you're going to claim to be a successor of Peter and an apostle of Jesus Christ, the vicar of Christ on earth, then you must give up your control over the land. Or if you want to have that, then you can no longer be an apostle and you give up the seat of Peter. Pick one or the other. Well, King Edward called upon him to present this view to Parliament, and he did, and Parliament was convinced by the Scripture, and they sided with the king against the Pope, and they no longer gave this money to the Bishop of Rome. And this just raised Wycliffe's status in England with the king, but it brought the hatred of the church down upon Wycliffe, as you can imagine. It brought much, much anger down upon him. And this would not be the only controversy that he was involved in. I mentioned indulgences earlier. Now, again, we'll talk about indulgences tomorrow. But indulgences was the idea that you could pay money to the church and if you were supposed to serve this many years, this many thousands of years or whatever in purgatory, if you were to give money to the church, then the Pope, well, he could shorten that sentence based upon the amount of money that you would give. Now, usually you had to do something else. You had to do an act of penance. You had to say paternosters or whatever it was that you had to say in order to, to really get the effect of the indulgence, that will not be the case with Johann Tetzel's we'll see tomorrow. But really, if you just paid your money and you did this act of penance, then you could get time reduced off of your sentence. And the reason for this is that you could get help from other saints. The Roman Catholic Church has a doctrine that they call the treasury of merit. And the idea is that there exists this great big treasury of the merit of Christ and Mary and the saints of all of their righteous deeds, all of their works righteousness goes into this big treasury of merit. And if you pay enough money, then some of the merit that's in this vast treasury can be taken out and applied to you. That's how it works. Who has the authority? Who has the key that unlocks this treasury? Well, the Pope, of course. 
So if you pay your money, the Pope will turn that key and he'll pull out some of that merit and he'll give it to you and it will be applied to you and you will get time out of purgatory. Again, this is more absurd example. Find that in the Bible. Uh, this is more absurd examples of the abuse of the church. But again, you can't be like the noble Bereans. You can't go and search the Scriptures because you don't have them. And you've been taught your whole life that the Pope is the... He's on the seat of Peter and he's infallible and he's telling you what God says and so you buy into this and you believe it. Well, Wycliffe railed against this practice. He said this, quote, sin cannot be pardoned for money. Righteousness cannot be bought or sold. And if the Pope has the power to forgive, then he ought to forgive everybody for free. Amen. He should. That same concept will appear again a little over a hundred years later with Martin Luther and the 95 Theses. So he fights against this practice of indulgence. He's, he's attacking the money of the church again. And then you have transubstantiation. Anybody know what transubstantiation is? One, two, oh, a bunch more. Okay. Y'all all know what trans... Why am I teaching this? Let's pray and I will go... No, okay. Well, transubstantiation, of course, is the whole idea that when the priest takes the elements of the supper, the bread and the wine, and he lifts them up and he consecrates them, that these elements actually, once they pass through the mouth, they become the actual body and blood of the Lord. Now, do you know why that's so important to Roman Catholic theology? It's not just an erroneous interpretation of John 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have no part of me. It's more than that because Roman Catholic theology teaches that the Mass, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, is another propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus. That when they lift up the body and blood of the Lord, it's as if Jesus is dying all over again, which is why it's so important for people to attend the Mass because you come and you get afresh the blood of Jesus that covers your sins. Never mind the fact that the writer to the Hebrews says Jesus once for all has perfected all who draw near to God through Him. But this was the belief, this idea of transubstantiation. And Wycliffe, again, fought against that, saying that the consecrated host, which we see upon the altar, it's, it's not Christ, it's not part of Christ, it's an efficacious sign of Him only. Now we need to get moving or we're never going to get to John Huss or we're going to be here till 9 o'clock. Now... I'll skip a couple of things here. But obviously, if he's attacking all of these things, he's attacking papal authority, isn't he? Which is the supreme doctrine of the church there, that the Pope is in charge of everything. So he's attacking against papal authority, arguing that it's absolutely preposterous. But when Wycliffe studied the Bible, here's what he came to understand. The gospel. Wycliffe came to understand justification by faith alone. Listen to what Wycliffe wrote again years before Luther, 200 years before Luther almost. He said, Trust wholly in Christ. Rely altogether on His sufferings. Beware of seeking to be justified in any other way than Christ's righteousness. End quote. There's the doctrine of justification by faith alone based upon the righteousness of Christ. Now, Wycliffe is teaching these things. He's teaching them to his parish. He's teaching them in Oxford. He's, he's expounding the Bible in the language of the people. And so it's not a surprise, again, that all of this hatred and all of this anger came upon him. 
and he began to be persecuted. And we don't have time to go into all the details of his persecution, but he was branded a heretic. And eventually, Pope Gregory XI would issue five papal bulls that banned all of Wycliffe's teachings, and they found him guilty of 18 counts of heresy. Now, they're called papal bulls because that was the Latin term for the wax seal that the Pope would put on his document. It was Latin bulla was the term, so they called them papal bulls, which are an official declaration made by the Pope. And the Pope issued these bulls, branding him a heretic, finding him guilty of 18 counts of heresy. He was removed from his his post there at Oxford in the middle of teaching a class. They came in, made a big public scene out of it, and they removed him from that post and he was condemned. But he would not be deterred, saying that he was ready to go to death, defending his convictions that were grounded in the truths of Scripture. And after he was banned from Oxford, he returned to Lutterworth where he pastored his church. And now he doesn't have the opportunity to teach those students in Oxford, so he decided that something else needed to be done. He wanted to reach people with God's Word, and the best way to do that was to translate the Bible into English. Never before had there been a Bible in the language of the people, but the man who loved the Bible with such zeal would give them one. In spite of the efforts of Rome to condemn him, they could not stop the Lord from using him. Listen at this. This statement here is pretty long, but this uh, statement from a historian. He writes this quote, In 1379, Wycliffe fell dangerously ill at Oxford, and great was the joy in the monasteries. But for that joy to be complete, the heretic must recant. And so four regents representing the order of the friars, accompanied by four aldermen, were appointed to visit their dying enemy. And they hastened to his dwelling, and they found him stretched upon his bed, calm and serene. You have death. On your lips, they said, be touched by your faults and retract in our presence all that you have said to our injury. And Wycliffe remained silent and the monks flattered themselves with an easy victory. But the nearer the reformer approached eternity, the greater was his horror of monkery. The consolation he had found in Jesus Christ had given him fresh energy and he begged his servant to raise him on his couch. And then feeble and pale and scarcely able to support himself, he turned towards the friars who were waiting for his recantation and opening his livid lips and fixing on them a piercing look, he said with emphasis, I shall not die but live and again declare the evil deeds of the friars. Well, the monks rushed in astonishment from his chamber. Wycliffe's prediction was verified and he lived to complete the most glorious of his works, the translation of the Scriptures into the language of the people." That project would begin in the year 1380 and it would continue for two years. Now, it's important to note that Wycliffe's English translation is different than what will happen later with Tyndale's. Tyndale's will be the first English translation based upon Greek and Hebrew, the original language of the Scriptures. But Wycliffe's translation was not on that. It was based upon Jerome's Bible, which was the Latin Vulgate. That was the Bible that the church used, the Latin Vulgate of Jerome, which was from the 4th century. Wycliffe would take that Latin, which had some errors in it that Tyndale will correct when he translates from the originals, And he would take the Latin and he would translate that Bible into English. And there at Lutterworth, he gave himself to that task. 
And verse after verse, he translated the Bible into English. Imagine that with your hand, just, just going on and on and on, translating the New Testament word by word into English. He would also turn over the Old Testament to one of his friends who would complete that task under Wycliffe's watchful eye, and it was finished in the year 1382. Now, there's no printing press in 1382, so if you want to make copies, again, they, they recruited a whole bunch of people to come in with, with an ink and, 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 and write them by hand and make all of these copies, and they could never keep up with the demand. One copy would be used and shared by several families. But regardless of the difficulty, the English finally had a Bible that they could read and understand for the first time, and the Archbishop of Arendelle didn't like it. And he said, quote, this pestilential and most wretched John Wycliffe of damnable memory, a child of the old devil, and himself a child or pupil of Antichrist who crowed his wickedness by translating the Scripture into the mother tongue. That's what they thought about the Bible. How dare you be a child of the devil and give God's Word to the people? It doesn't make sense to us today, does it? Well, the man who loved the Bible put it into the hands of the people, and this was the first trumpet sound of Reformation. And we can't leave this section yet before we just talk a little bit about his love for the Bible. One historian notes that above all of his other knowledge, Wycliffe possessed a profound acquaintance with the Scriptures. He studied the Bible. He venerated it as the Word of God. He held that it contained a perfect revelation of the divine will, a full, plain, and infallible rule of both what man is to believe and what he is to do. He fully received the truths into his heart and governed by his his actions by its teachings. Turning away from human guides, he prayerfully and diligently searched the Scriptures to know the will of God. And then he bowed to that will with the docility of a child. Another scholar said that what can be maintained is that Wycliffe was guided in all of his conclusions by his interpretation of the Bible. Wycliffe himself said, Neither the testimony of Augustine nor Jerome nor any other saint should be accepted except insofar as it was based upon Scripture. The New Testament is a full authority and open to the understanding of simple men as to the points that be most needful to salvation. Here we have sola scriptura on the lips of John Wycliffe. Now Wycliffe would have followers. They were called as the Lollards, which was a derogatory term. It means the the mumblers or the poor preachers. And these men were poor. They they really went out the way Christ sent the apostles out in in Luke chapter 9. And they had nothing. They they went about with sandals on their feet. And everywhere they went, they, uh, they took parts of... Wycliffe's Bible, and they took tracts in their hand, and they proclaimed the Word of God to the people, and they would grow and they would spread. There's still Lollards around in the time of Luther, for example. Well, following the completion of the English Bible in 1382, though he endured physical suffering from having a stroke, he continued his writing ministry. He published many works during this time exposing Rome, and he was finally excommunicated by Rome. It took all that time. Two years later, in 1384, while he was preaching, he suffered another stroke in the pulpit. And he would die three days later on December the 31st. The church would not be content with this. Years later, at the Council of Constance, he would be rebranded a heretic and the order was given that his body be exhumed and burned. And his body was. And the ashes were thrown into the River Swift. 
That's what the church thought of John Wycliffe. But they couldn't stop this movement of God that was coming upon the world. After him, the teachings of Wycliffe would spread far and wide and they would have tremendous influence on another man named John Huss. John Huss. Now, I can't talk about John Huss without first telling you that I do believe that this man is an ancient ancestor of mine. I do believe that I am a long descendant from John Huss, and you can't prove me wrong about that, and I can't prove myself right, and so you're just going to have to accept it. I searched back. I got one of those Ancestry.com things, and I know that you know everybody's related to Abraham Lincoln or whoever, some, some famous person, but traced my line back on my grandfather's side of the family, and I got all the way back to England 300 years after John Huss, and I found the oldest relative I could find, and her name was Abigail Hussey. I don't want to call her Abigail Hussey. But that's how it's spelled. So we're going to say Hussey. Now, John never had any children himself, but his brother did, and when his brother died... John Huss took those nephews of his or his children into his home and raised them as his own. And I am convinced that Abigail came from one of those children and I have descended down from the Huss family. And I will, I will claim that until the day I die. Um, but one scholar notes about John Huss that if Wycliffe was the morning star of the Reformation, that Huss was the guiding star of the movement. He would take advantage of the teachings of John Wycliffe in the modern-day Czech Republic, born sometime 1369, 1379, sometime between there. His last name comes from the city in which he was born, Husanek, in, in, Husanek excuse me, in Bohemia. Husanek is a, is a word that means goose town. John is from goose town. You'll find out why that's significant either when you read that board back there or if you come to the Martin Luther lecture tomorrow, lecture tomorrow you'll find out why that's significant. He came from a, a poor family, but he was able to study theology, earn his bachelor's and master's degree from the University of Prague. And I don't have time to tell you all about John Huss. I wish that I could because John Huss in his young days lived a, a hedonistic lifestyle, a sinful lifestyle. Even as he was studying to be a minister, he pursued uh, the deeds of the flesh. And yet God got a hold of this man's heart and used him in a tremendous, tremendous way. And what a reminder that is, God doesn't need perfect men. And aren't you glad for that? Because if God needs perfect men, none qualify. Christ Himself alone was the perfect man and His righteousness covers all of our sins. Well, he eventually, even though he came from a poor family, was able to study theology. He earned his bachelor's and master's from the University of Prague. He would eventually become the dean of the University of Prague and the priest at Bethlehem Chapel there. And after becoming the priest... He's introduced to the writings of Wycliffe. Wycliffe's writings are being spread, and he's introduced by, to them by a true believer in Christ, Jerome of Prague. Jerome himself would later be martyred. It was, it was dangerous in these days to have the writings of Wycliffe. If you were found out to have read the writings of Wycliffe, you would be killed on the spot. Uh, they were outlawed, illegal. But John got his hands on these. He read them, and he was convinced of their truth. And he was particularly convinced of Wycliffe's view that the church is made up of all believers in Christ. Back then, the Roman Catholic Church claimed that the church is only the clergy, not the lay people. In fact, when they would give out the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, they wouldn't even let the lay people have the cup because that's Jesus' blood and they're too stupid. They'll spill it. 
So they weren't allowed to take it. There was this division between clergy and laymen. Well, Wycliffe said that's not the case, and, and John Huss would really take up that view that the church is really made up of all predestined believers in Christ, not just the clergy. Well, he began to preach these views at the Bethlehem Chapel, and he would begin preaching his criticisms also of the papacy. It's interesting to note what uh, Shelley has written about the church there at Prague. On the walls were paintings contrasting the behavior of the popes and Christ. The pope rode a horse. Christ walked barefoot. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. The pope preferred to have his kissed. And these paintings that John Huss would look at of Jesus would just show him such a contrast between who Jesus is and who the Pope is. And he would really denounce that corruption in the church. And he would do that. He denied transubstantiation. He spoke out against indulgences. He condemned relics. He exalted Christ as the head of the church opposed to the Pope. And he criticized many other abuses of the church. He thundered this opposition in the church there at Prague, and he grew in, in great, great support, and he preached a lot. One historian has that he preached over 3,500 sermons in his 12 years there at the Bethlehem Church in, in, in Prague. He preached and he preached and he preached in the language of the people. Well, eventually they tried to silence him. They demanded that the church remove him from his pulpit. They would not, but what would get us is that they would demand that they remove him, and if they wouldn't remove him, there would be no burials. There would be no last rites. If there's no burials, there's no last rites. There's no salvation in Roman Catholic theology. And so John Huss willingly stepped down. And when he stepped down, he went to southern Bohemia, to his hometown there of Husinek, and he began writing. He read Wycliffe's work on the church, and he, he, uh, De Ecclesia was the name of it, on the church. And so he decided to write his own work, very catchy title, very unique and original. It was also called On the Church. Uh, where he wrote about the church to his people as well, uh, where he wrote against the Pope and these things that he would uh, was experiencing and preaching against. And then came time for the council at Constance in 1415. And they summoned John Huss to come and to give an account for his teaching, for his preaching, and his heresy. And they promised him safe passage. They promised that if he came, that nothing would happen to him. He would just come and he would be able to speak out and give an account and then they would let him go free. But do you think that happened? When he arrived at the Council of Constance, he was arrested immediately and he was thrown in a dungeon. And the people there, the clergy, they began to bring him and put him in trial for his views. He was a victim of the Inquisition. This was not a fair trial at all. John Hush just wanted to speak and to give an account and to present the Scriptures, and every time he would try, they would silence him. He claimed that he was only simply trying to preach the Scriptures and that if they could convince him from the Scriptures that he was wrong, he would recant. And of course they couldn't, nor did they even try. But Huss would not recant. And the council condemned him as a heretic, and he was to be burned to death, and still John Huss would not recant. Listen to what they did to this man and, and see if it sounds familiar to you. 
They brought priestly garments out and they clothed him with garments of a priest. And as they did, they, they mocked him. And as they mocked him, they removed each of the priestly garments one article at a time, stripping him of the priesthood. They then took a pair of shears and they cut off the crown of his head. And they put a paper bishop's hat on him to cover it up and they wrote the words, ringleaders of heretics on it. Huss said this, quote, For my sake, my Lord Jesus Christ wore a crown of thorns. So for His sake, why should I not wear this light crown, even though it is a shameful thing? And as he put the hat on his head, the bishop said, Now we commit your soul to hell. But Huss said in response, But I commend into your hands, O Lord Jesus Christ, my spirit that you have redeemed. Before he died, John Huss prayed these words. He said, O most holy Christ, draw me, weak as I am after thyself. For if thou dost not draw us, we cannot follow thee. Strengthen my spirit, that it may be willing. If the flesh is weak, let thy grace precede us. Come between and follow, for without thee we cannot go for thy sake to cruel death. Give me a fearless heart and a right faith, a firm hope, a perfect love, that for thy sake I may lay down my life with patience and joy. Amen. Well, on the way to his execution, he passed a fire that was burning his books, and he laughed, and he told everyone present not to believe the lies that were being told about him. They got to a place that was very aptly named. It was called the Devil's Place. Huss knelt, and he prayed again. They asked him one more time if he would recant. And he would not. He said, God is my witness that the evidence against me is false. I have never thought nor preached except with the one intention of winning men, if possible, from their sins. And the truth of the gospel I have written, taught, and preached, and today I will gladly die with my lips. I will now seal, or excuse me, what I taught with my lips, I will now seal with my blood. They tied him to the stake with chains and they set it on fire. And as the fire was growing around him, John Huss sang a hymn to the Lord. And he sang all the way until it reached his throat and he could no longer sing. And there John Huss died at the stake at the hands of the Roman Catholic Church who martyred him, killed him, because he preached in the language of the people, because he claimed that Christ alone was head of the church and not the Pope, and because he preached the doctrines of justification by faith alone. They collected his ashes, and like they would do with Wycliffe, they threw them into the, the Rhine River. Now Huss's influence, however, would continue through his followers, through his writings, and they would have a tremendous impact, as we will see tomorrow, on the wild boar of the Reformation Martin Luther. As we finish up tonight, these are two men that we owe a great debt. God used these men as really the first movement to begin to rescue the gospel away from the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church. They were the beginning of what's going to happen under Martin Luther. God used them to preach His Word, to convert souls, and to prepare the world for what's going to happen in the 16th century. 
In case you wonder how indebted you should be to these men, one English historian said that all English-speaking Christians should annually celebrate the life and ministry of John Wycliffe. Another quoting clergy from the time said, Master John Wycliffe, by translating the gospel into English, has rendered it more acceptable and more intelligible to laymen and even to women than it has hitherto been to learned and intelligent clerks. What's the reason for this? What's the reason for the success of Wycliffe and Huss? I know we didn't talk as much about Huss, but his influence cannot be underestimated. Was it not because of their love of the Bible and their preaching and presenting the gospel and the Bible to people in a language that they can understand? And that tells us, as we're going to see this weekend, this very plain truth that if we want to reach the world, the methods have not changed. God's means do not change and ebb and flow with culture. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the times are going to come when they don't want sound teaching. They're going to heat for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. They're going to have itching ears that they want to be scratched and that's who they're going to look for. And so Paul said to Timothy, therefore give the people what they want. What did he say? Preach the Word. When it's in season, when it's out of season, when it's accepted, when it's rejected, when it will cost you your life at the stake, preach the Word. That hasn't changed. Let us learn from these men and be faithful to God's Word as they were. Let's finish with these words from John Huss. Therefore, faithful Christian, seek the truth, listen to the truth, learn the truth, love the truth, tell the truth, learn the truth, defend the truth, even to death. Let's pray. Father, let us obey the words there of our brother John Huss that we as individual believers, not just as a corporate body of the church, but as individual believers, would be people who seek the truth, listen to the truth, learn the truth, love the truth, defend the truth, and proclaim it even if it costs us our lives. It is Your words to us. May we rejoice in it. May we rest in it. And may we proclaim it. God, thank you for these men and what you did in their lives. And we ask that you would do the same in ours. That you would send another movement like this. Lord, we praise you for your sovereignty. And we know that if it's your will, you can. And so we ask that your will would be done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.